We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for $2.50. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2. Price of participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price. We know you can't get enough of your favorite flavors. Luckily, Kroger Free Pickup makes it easy to grab what you need without any surprise fees. Whether it's extra buns for the barbecue or those chips you just can't quit, start your cart with the Kroger app. Kroger, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply, subject to availability. It's the big $10 sale, so mix and match and get two, three, four, five, or even 10 for $10 with your card. So many great deals. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And good afternoon, and welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. And before I bring on my guest, David Muller, I have a couple of things I wanted to mention. And normally, I don't like to say anything that kind of dates the program, giving a way of dating it, although I periodically mention that we're doing social distancing and that sort of thing. But that goes on. That's been going on for a year. And what I was going to mention here is Clifford Stone, who was a figure in the UFO community, passed away on February 10th of this year. I had met Cliff Stone first in uh, February of 1989, when Don Schmidt and I made our first trip to Roswell, for some bizarre reason, Cliff wanted to meet us at the um, Burger King on North Main Street in, in uh, Roswell, showed up in uniform, finally took us to his home. And the first thing he did once we got inside, he says, oh, I've left something in the car. He goes outside and he comes back in carrying a document with a top secret cover sheet over it. And as he disappeared into his bedroom, I said to Don... Unless he's got a vault in there, he's going to jail because top secret materials require a vault for storage. And I didn't believe that he had a um, vault in his house. He then proceeded to lecture Don to me about UFOs, showing the knowledge that was extensive. I mean, he'd been around forever talking about UFOs or investigating UFOs or uh, filing for requests about UFOs. So he was quite knowledgeable. What I kind of laughed at is his... Um, jumps to conclusions. And the best example of that, he was talking about a Chilean Air Force officer who had been chasing a UFO and fired on it. And Cliff said they hit it without results. And he showed us the document that came from the U.S. State Department outlaying this or relying, talking about this event. And I read it over and it said it, he, had hit, he had fired on it without results, meaning not that he had hit it, but that there was no results of his firing on it. He could have missed completely. And I thought that was one of those kind of jumps of conclusions that too many in the UFO community often make. Um, the best thing that he did for us on our trip to Roswell is he introduced us to Ralph Hike, who eventually introduced us to the family of Sheriff Wilcox and gave us some other valuable information. But Cliff um, became, and I, I don't like the word controversial because it suggests there's really two sides to the story, and I don't think there are. I think there's a single side. Became controversial in the UFO community with his tales of uh, UFO crashes and 57 different species visiting Earth and his involvement in practically every big UFO sighting you could think of. Uh, at, at 16, he was involved in the Kecksburg sighting when a friend of his at, I think it was Lockbourne Air Force Base, told him they were bringing these crashed thing to the base and picked him up and took him toward the base so he could see it being 
driven onto the base, the, the, the object recovered at Kecksburg, onto the base on a flatbed truck. He talked about being assigned uh, at an Army post during the controversy about the alien autopsy and how he, as a young enlisted man, had been able to peek through the curtain while uh, senior officers were shown this alien autopsy film, which was later admitted to be a hoax. So Cliff interjected himself into an awful lot of this, but he did really great work with the FOIA, and he kept up the FOIA request going. And the best thing he did was discovering, I shouldn't say he discovered it, it was really Robert Todd, but but he did a lot of work with Moondust and Operation Blue Fly. He got Senator Jeff Bingaman of New Mexico involved in this, and Bingaman asked the Air Force about Project Moondust, and the Air Force response is there's no such project. Once the documentation was revealed with a proper provenance coming from the State Department mentioning Moondust, and I'd later found four cases in the Project Blue Book files labeled Moondust, the Air Force came back with, well, we we uh, were mistaken about that. There was a Project Moondust, but we never used it. Well, we can prove it was actually used as well. So that it goes beyond what the Air Force was saying. But the point simply is that Cliff had done a good job of gathering the FOIA materials and, and uh following up on the investigations. His conclusions based on those materials wasn't always as precise as it could be, but he did a very good job on that. Um, the most tragic event I can think of is Cliff, after he retired from the Army, was a security guard at the Roswell Mall and got a call that there had been a traffic accident, a motorcycle accident near the mall, and he had to respond to it. The person killed in the accident was his son. And I could think of nothing more horrific than walking up on an accident scene and finding a family member like that. Just just a horrific, horrific uh, experience. Anyway, Cliff continued on. I think he became a lesser known figure lately as some of his tales were proven to be uh, exaggerations, to be kind. So anyway, Cliff Stone passed away um, on February 10th of this year, and I thought I would mention that in passing here. Now on to David Mahler, who has a lifelong interest in the subject of UFOs, as we all have. He joined the MUFON UFO Network in 1990 as a field investigator, trainee. He then served as a field investigator, state section director, as well as the Illinois state director. David is currently an independent UFO researcher. Again, aren't we all? Uh, during his tenure with MUFON, he had conducted numerous investigations into alleged UFO sightings and related experiences. He has discussed the subject of UFOs on numerous radio and television news programs. Again, haven't we all? <laughs> I'm sorry, David, I can't resist it. I don't know why. <laughs> he has also lectured on the subject to various schools and adult audiences over the years, and I'm not going to make my normal comment here. He has an extensive personal library of UFO books, journals, magazines, newspapers, and case files from around the world that covers the last 70 years. With this, he has been examining the detailed history of UFO sighting reports and related patterns. David strives to have an open mind regarding the UFO phenomenon. However, he also acknowledges the need for a skeptical approach, which is a good good approach to have when examining each individual UFO report, despite the large percentage of misidentifications and hoaxes. And we have to stress there's an awful lot of hoaxes in the UFO data. David recognizes what appears to be a core phenomenon beneath it all. He received a Bachelor of Science degree and development from, and I can't believe it is cut off on my notes here. David, where did you get your Bachelor of Science degree? Uh, Southern Illinois University at Edwardsville. Okay, thank you. And he hosts the website uh, www.davidmarlerufo.com. Mar <laughs> That's all one word, davidmarlerufo.com. And his uh, book is, I believe, Triangular UFOs and, and a um, Estimate of the Situation. David, welcome to A Different Perspective. Thank you, Kevin. It's great to be here. And I'm sorry I kind of botched that, but... <laughs> As they say, these things happen. That's right. Now, you are, I would think, the expert on triangular-shaped UFOs. Well, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate that term, expert on UFOs, when we really don't know what UFOs are. But I'd like to think I have lots of data. Okay, you have a lot of data on triangular UFOs. What sparked the interest in triangular-shaped UFOs? Sure. Uh, great question. Uh, as you referenced, I actively became involved in UFOs 
1990, I believe it was January of 1990. And at that time, one of the more prevalent uh, stories uh, and areas of interest within UFO circles, as you recall, were the famous Belgian UFO sightings involving these large triangular objects uh, of unknown origin that were uh, being tracked on radar, being sighted visually, hundreds if not thousands of witnesses across Belgium, and uh, the Belgian Air Force were taking those reports quite seriously. I found those to be very interesting uh, for a number of reasons. One, obviously, the overt uh, interest on the part of the Belgian Air Force. But as I always like to point out with these triangular UFOs that we're now becoming ever increasingly familiar with today compared to 1990 worldwide, I might add, is the fact that I always relegate these triangular UFOs to what I call the unambiguous UFO category. Admittedly, Kevin, you know, we can go through hundreds and thousands of UFO case files. Probably 30 to 40 percent are lights in the sky reports, which can easily be discounted based on some type of prosaic explanation. Satellite, planet, you know, Venus low on the horizon, magnified by refraction, uh, many types of prosaic explanations that can account for the light in the sky reports. These triangular UFOs are quite often dark objects blotting out the stars. So there's some, some type of substance here. Uh, in addition to that, the large size and uh, some of the unusual characteristics that go beyond just simple light in the sky reports that can easily be dismissed. And so I started getting involved in that. I had, an, as I like to say, an academic interest in the Belgian sightings. And then while I was Illinois State Director in January of 2000, uh, I always like to say triangular UFOs became personal because just within about 30 to 35 miles uh, of where I lived at the time in southern Illinois, we had the now famous January 5th, 2000 Southern Illinois triangular UFO case involving multiple police officers and civilians that witnessed uh, between four, roughly four and 5 a.m., uh, we had a series of sightings of this large triangular UFO that in shape, size, lighting configurations, eerily matched the Belgian sightings that had occurred 10 years prior. Did, uh, were the police officers and the people involved, were they sort of independent witnesses calling in at different places or were they all kind of linked through radio and telephone? Uh, well, a great, great point to bring up. They were, in fact, at different locations. They were in neighboring municipalities, but they were in radio contact with each other through St. Clair County Dispatch. And one of the nice benefits to this case, uh, and I, cannot, I cannot take credit for this, I have to cite my friend and colleague Daryl Barker, who's a researcher out of St. Louis. Uh, Daryl was able to secure the St. Clair County Dispatch tape. So we have the uh, recordings of the officers describing the UFO while they were looking at it. More importantly, as you can appreciate uh, this point, is we had the time index for when they were making the radio broadcast. So we have very specific times, placing them at very specific positions relative to one another. And then we're able to essentially see the sequential series of sightings with uh, timestamps, really being able to mark the, the precise times of when they saw this object. Any attempt to photograph it? There was. Uh, actually, uh, Officer Craig Stevens of Millstadt, Illinois, uh, popped the trunk to his squad car and ran and grabbed the Polaroid camera, which in 2000 they were still using. I don't think you can find a Polaroid camera today, or if so, you probably can't find the film. But uh, he tried to make an attempt using the only thing that he had available at the time, which was his Polaroid, and he snapped a picture. Unfortunately, uh, Polaroids, uh, for those that know photography, are not exactly designed for nighttime photography. And more importantly, it was a very cold January morning, and so the operating temperatures were probably not optimal in addition to that. So all we have is an, amor an amorphous series of like three or four lights that you can see that are somewhat blurred. So I do commend him, though, for at least having, you know, the frame of mind to think about trying to snap a picture. As you and I know, Kevin, there's many accounts where people literally had a camera hanging around their neck. They see a UFO and they're so gobsmacked by what they saw, they didn't even think to take a picture. Absolutely. And this was in 2000? January 5th, 2000. Correct. Between so 4 and 5 a.m. So it was just before everybody got a cell phone with a camera. Yes, in it. exactly, exactly. It's something that I often reference with regard to the Phoenix Lights case. You know, if we had the Phoenix Lights case occur ten years later, we may have had some cell phone uh, photographs. But unfortunately, that happened way back in '97. 
Well, we're going to have to take a break here. And I always hesitate to say that because uh, I don't know why. But uh, we have to pay for the programs in some fashion. So we'll take a break here. I'm talking to David Mahler. And the website is www.davidmahlerufo.com. David Mahler UFO is all one word. And the book is Triangular UFOs, an Estimate of the Situation, I believe. And if it's not, he'll let me know immediately, if not sooner. <laughs> uh, I've also uh, want to mention briefly um, The Best of Project Blue Book, which is my most recent book. Uh, take a look at it at Amazon, as, long, as well as Encounters in the Desert, which is about the Socorro case. Uh, if you're so inclined, rate the book, write a review, because that always helps. You are listening to a different perspective on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, and we'll be back right after this, so please stick around. David Muller, whose name I can now pronounce. For some reason, I was having trouble at the beginning of the program, but I'm set. I'm set to go now. The website is www.davidmullerufo.com. Mine is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, which I don't mention often enough. I believe, at least that's my theory on it. We were talking about triangular UFOs, and we were talking about a sighting in Illinois. Uh, Involving police officers and with some civilians as well. Correct. Uh, we had a number of uh, civilian witnesses uh, that came forward initially, and then subsequent to the local St. Louis area media coverage, which I have to say treated the case very uh, in a very serious uh, fashion. I think in part because it did involve so many police officers that were willing to come forward, Kevin, and then that really. I think uh, created fertile ground for other people to come forward without so much fear of ridicule as they might otherwise encounter. I know with the Leveland case, which I've talked about on the program several times, that some of the witnesses there came forward after uh, the news media got involved in that sort of thing. And the the point always has been, well, they were inspired by the uh, reports coming in they want to get their name in the paper that sort of thing any did you get any a sense of any of that going on with the the witnesses that came forward after the event not so much kevin and the reason i say that is uh, a number of people came forward anywhere from a year to three or four years later uh all of the subsequent witnesses did not want their name used um you know for those that are really just kind of trying to grab onto the limelight. Usually they want to have their face in front of a camera. They want their name out there. And I found that uh, these witnesses were very reticent to uh, come forward with their name or to, you know, go on camera. And so uh, I found that to, you know, not necessarily speak to their credibility, but it definitely makes me not so much embrace the idea that these are just people looking for attention. If I wanted to learn more about this case uh, online or whatever, is, is there a place I can look for it? Uh, well, uh, I do not online other than Daryl Barker, and I, I apologize. I don't know Daryl Barker's website address off offhand, but if they type in Daryl, uh, D-A-R-R-Y-L, uh, Barker, uh, B-A-R-K-E-R, you should be able to find some information. Daryl really has kept up to date, uh, and even Daryl had some witnesses come forward subsequent to the initial reports. And um, what I found interesting, though, was the fact that we had this, you know, now famous case, uh, you know, when you're investigating a case, you don't think it's going to be one of those that's that really is in the annals of UFO history. But, you know, at the time I was just investigating it as any other case, albeit a fairly good one, uh, having multiple witnesses and, and having some of this other information available, like the, the recordings of the officers. But again, as, as we alluded to during the first segment, I was already interested in the Belgian wave of sightings, and I found striking parallels between these two uh, very prominent, you know, series of sightings. And since I saw parallels there, I began to ask myself, well, does it just end there, or are there other cases? And it was really that idea that kind of launched my research into delving into the historical record. And at that time, I didn't have as much historical material at my disposal as I do now. And uh, but in going through the newspaper archives, uh, both online as well as actually going through microfilm, 
um, in collecting a lot of different reports from other researchers, um, I started to see that these triangular UFOs, contrary to uh, a very popular opinion that was circulating out there at the time, these weren't new. Uh, well, we let, me, have let, me break, let me break in here, because that, that sure. was a question that was going to come up, getting a history of the, the triangular UFOs. But the, the sighting sure. that you're talking about here, uh, that was of a triangular-shaped object then? Mm-hmm. Correct. And did you write anything in the MUFON journal about it? I did. It, in fact, it was the uh, cover story, and I believe it was the March or April edition of 2000 uh, that we ran. At the time, Walt Andrus, uh, who we both recall, uh, Walt had asked me to write up a uh, story for the MUFON Journal, given uh, you know the caliber of this this report or series of reports, and so uh, that's in the MUFON Journal. I believe March or April of 2000 was the issue that it, it, it appeared in. And were there any uh, electromagnetic effects or anything else associated with the sighting other than the attempted photograph? Right. No, no. Good question. Um, you know, contrary to Leveland, Texas, and some of these other uh, cases, uh, this uh, in particular case had uh, no reported electromagnetic effects, which I, I might add in now looking at hundreds, if not thousands of these triangular UFO reports worldwide, very few seem to have the electromagnetic effects that we were familiar with, with many of the cases from like the 1950s and 1960s that were often reported. Well, when I interrupted you then, you were about to launch into a history. So you're suggesting that triangular UFOs go back a, a long ways. And I remember seeing a chart that was developed in the 1960s that did have triangular-shaped UFOs on it, but there seemed to be very few reports of that. How far back do we go for the triangular-shaped UFOs? Well, uh, my research, I, I've actually gone back to some of the early scientific journals from the late 1800s, where they make reference to triangular things being seen in the sky. Now, as a historical researcher, Kevin, you can appreciate the further you go back in time, the harder it is to get details, the harder it is to corroborate, the harder it is to verify. So I put those in there just citing that there were accounts of triangular aerial objects being seen at the time. But it's not really until we get into the 1940s, 1950s with Project Sign, Project Grudge, and then ultimately Project Blue Book that we start to see in military reports, very detailed accounts. Some, I might add, and I think this is important, just like with other UFO reports, some involving radar confirmation, not just visual, but radar visual cases. And th th this, of course, goes back into the 1940s. Yes. Uh, are there many cases from that era? Uh, is there a progression of the sightings that you've seen um, until we get into to where we are today, I mean, a, a sure. growth in the, the, the number of sightings. Sure. Uh, that, there's been consistency in a lot of the reports of these triangular UFOs, but to your point, at the 40s, there, there were minimal reports, and then as we progressed into the 1950s and then into the 1960s, and then just literally this morning, Kevin, I was going through uh, 1969 to 1972, a set of files, which I'd love to talk about here in a little bit that I've recently uh, come into the possession of. And I found a huge number in 19, from 1969 to 1972 of triangular UFO reports in the United States and even some reports in Canada. And so to your point, it's almost like we see this progression or this evolution with regard to the frequency of reports. But that being said, you know, going through some of these early historic files, uh, I just have found some reports from 1957 in newspapers, as well as uh, the early 1960s. What's interesting is unusual characteristics that we see with the modern reports are echoed in these earlier accounts. And one example, there was a case from uh, Camarillo, California, 1957. Uh, a number of witnesses saw a triangular UFO, and they cited that it was unusual because the base of the triangle was the leading edge. And otherwise, it was flying with, as I call it, blunt in forward movement, where the, the apex of the triangle is trailing behind. And when you think about that, I mean, obviously, we have delta wing aircraft. We have a history of that, as do many other countries. Um, but when we think of a, 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 a triangular aircraft, a conventional triangular aircraft, we always think of it with the point as the leading edge based on simple aerodynamic principles. With many of these triangular reports, even going back to 1957, uh, they report that the triangle is moving with the flat side of the triangle as a leading edge. And to me, that just defies aerodynamic principles as we know it. 
I was going to say it, it suggests a different kind of power source, a different way of maneuvering through the air if it's, if it's I, maneuvering that direction. I agree. and That's the conclusion that I've come to. And again, many people have stated, well, some of these triangular reports, uh, they, they talk about it moving slow. They're silent. You know, OK, you're saying that the flat side's the, the leading edge of the triangle. Well, that might be a blimp or a lighter than air vehicle. And I concede, yes, in some cases, perhaps. In fact, I found one from the late 1950s. It turned out to be a, a balloon that was actually even photographed as it was uh, coming close to the ground. But the cases that I'm interested in are the cases demonstrating and describing these characteristics. But in conjunction with that, these have the ability to often hover and then rapidly accelerate. Uh, we estimate even going supersonic. There's no lighter than air vehicle. There's no dirigible. There's no blimp that has the rigidity to be able to withstand that type of G-force. So yes, blimps, balloons could explain some of these accounts, but certainly not all of them. And I, what I'll do is I'll, my blog, I'll put up a picture too of uh, triangular shaped balloons because I've got a couple of those in my files somewhere. Mm -hmm. Sure. Just as an example of what the, that kind of looks like, you know, and I've gotten a number of questions from from um, people who read the blog over the last uh, week or so. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions was, and it kind of evolves out, out of what you were saying, is uh, he wanted to know if there were any sightings of these triangular objects by pilots, military, mm -hmm. airline, or pri private. Yeah, uh, there have been. In fact, there was a dramatic encounter, I believe, in 1996 near Manchester Airport in the U.K., and a commercial airliner was uh, on final approach into Manchester Airport when a black triangular or wedge-shaped object almost hit their, their wing. And the pilot co-pilot saw it coming opposite traffic, in other words, approaching them as they were approaching it. And it happened so fast, they instinctively both braced for impact. They both described this in the newspaper account subsequent to the event. What's interesting about that is the uh, British Ministry of Defense took it quite seriously, as did the CAA, their version of the FAA, and they launched a full one-year investigation into this account. This was not something that was just laughed off or summarily dismissed. For a year, they actively looked at this, and I have the report in my book, uh, and I talk about this case. Um, these were highly trained pilots, a lot of flight hours. Uh, they both witnessed this object. It was not tracked on radar, I might add. Uh, it was just visually sighted. But uh, it left an indelible impression in the pilot and co-pilot's mind. And obviously, as I think a lot of the military involvement in UFOs has been based on this, uh, this was obviously of uh, national defense. If you have something that's moving in controlled airspace near commercial aircraft or military aircraft, um, it needs to be taken seriously. I don't care what your personal belief is on UFOs. Whatever these things are, if they're moving in controlled airspace, we need to take it seriously. And in this case, the CAA did in the UK. At the end of the one-year investigation, the source of the uh, UFO was unknown and the conclusions were unknown. They, they were literally left scratching their head after a one-year investigation into this case. That's one of the more prominent cases. In the 1950s, I found a news clipping uh, from uh, Seattle. It described uh, two, uh, a private pilot and a friend, two individuals in, in a private plane uh, flying back from Texas that looked down and saw two triangular uh, UFOs. They called them flying saucers back then in 1950, um, and they saw two triangular uh, objects moving over the terrain below them. They then tried to descend to get a better look at it, and in the newspaper account, which doesn't provide a lot of details, uh, within about three to four minutes they had descended, and then they looked and the objects were gone. They apparently had disappeared. It was a clear day. The only thing that they could uh, surmise was that they accelerated rapidly and disappeared. So, yes, there, in answer to the question, there are pilot sightings of these uh, triangular UFOs. Well, that case sounded vaguely familiar from Seattle. Um, I, I, I seem to remember reading something like that in the Project Blue Book files. Was, was that case in Project Blue Book? Or have you, I'm sure you've sourced Project Blue Book. Looking oh, yes. <laughs> yes. I, I, well, it might be in Blue Book, but I actually found uh, a news clipping uh, going through a series of scrapbooks, which I acquired uh, from a pre, uh, an early researcher from the 1960s who had since passed on. And I found that in there. And then 
in this latest acquisition of information that I've obtained, I found another uh, typewritten uh, transcript from a Seattle newspaper describing the same encounter. So there's, well, some documentation, but that doesn't really, uh, it's not the kind of documentation you really want to find. You want to find something a little bit more official, I think. Ideal, yes. Ideally, as you know, the, you know, the, the British Ministry of Defense file on this case involving the commercial airliner near Manchester Airport obviously is much more substantive. Well, let me let me take a break here. Uh, the book is Triangular UFOs, an Estimate of the Situation, I believe. Yes. I got that right. Good for me. And uh, as I've said in the past, you know, take a look at Roswell in the 21st century. I think it's a cold case look at the Roswell case. It shows it in a sort of a different light. I will be back here with David Muller in just a moment. We'll be talking about triangular UFOs and see what else we can learn. And this is a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. And we'll be back right after this. So please stick around. David Mahler, we're talking about triangular UFOs and whether pilots had seen them and that sort of thing. Uh, before we get to that, I just wanted to mention there are some other fine programs on the Exxon Broadcast Network that deal with the paranormal. Go to the xzbn.net website and you'll be able to um, get a list of the programming. And I'm sure you're going to find a number of programs that will be of interest to you. And there's a lot of good stuff going on on the Exxon Broadcast Network. So take a look at that sort of thing. When we went away, we were uh, talking about pilot-related reports and that sort of thing. Uh, military pilots involved in uh, these sorts of activities? Absolutely, uh, Kevin. In fact, uh, you were mentioning Project Blue Book earlier. And uh, going through the Blue Book files, there's a case from Albany, Georgia, 1959, where there was a, a pilot flying solo, uh, flying a solo mission, and at night he observed, and this is well documented, I might add, in the Blue Book file. It goes into really good detail. Uh, he described seeing the circular light in the sky. It was uh, clear skies, you know, uh, clear visibility at night. Uh, he could see the stars. But he saw this very sharply defined circular light. And it, it was enough to catch his attention. And as he continued to fly, he kept looking at it. And he stated in the Blue Book report, unlike stars or planets that tend to scintillate, this had a very sharply defined circular look to it. And so as he continued to fly, continued to pique his interest, he then decided he would increase his altitude. If it was a star or planet, obviously it's not going to change perspective very much, and then he can immediately rule that out. He increased his altitude, and within a matter of a few minutes, according to the Blue Book report, he then saw this object or this light that was above him, which was now below him. <laughs> so clearly this was something in the atmosphere. Uh, he then, uh, in the Blue Book report, descended in altitude and tried to close on this light. As he did, the light alternated uh, red, uh, I'm sorry, white, orange, white, orange. And then he said, as it continued to, to oscillate or, or flash back and forth that color, he then described in the Blue Book account, the light then took on the form of a triangle, which within a matter of a second or two after that, then divided into two triangles, which then disappeared. Now, what's interesting about this is the Blue Book account, I believe, discounted the sighting as the planet Venus. The one thing it did not take into account was that the Albany, Georgia airport, at the time of the sighting and at the same location of his sighting, was tracking an unknown radar target at the same exact spot. So we've got a radar observation as well. Correct, correct. Did, and so and did, that's that's an interesting one from Blue Book. Did the um, uh, um, so the, I, I'm, what I'm thinking here is they the radar operators were interviewed by the Blue Book uh, investigators. Well, it's interesting you say that, and, and I, I have the report right here uh, in the Blue Book record card. It actually goes on and describes the, the situation, and it actually states, if I can find it here, I just had it a minute ago as I was just working on this, it's, so it's funny that, that this came up in the conversation. Uh, 
I can't find it now. I apologize. Here we go. I'm sorry. 1953. I had I had the year wrong. I've got so many cases I get them mixed up. 1953. It said uh, radar unidentified, and then in parentheses on the blue book record card, no request for radar analysis made and weather data not obtained. So it was like there was no attempt to even try to track track down this data. What what month was this? This was uh, January 28th, 1953. So it was, it was while the Robertson panel was doing their investigation, the Robertson exactly. panel be, being the CIA-sponsored exactly. CIA uh, investigation, and which sort of changed the whole tone of the Project Blue Book investigations. But this was at that time, so it wouldn't have changed them. So it's kind of funny that they didn't do more investigation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the other questions we got, we got, I got here, um, <laughs> One of the one of the uh, correspondents wanted to know if there was any correlation between the shapes of the UFOs and what they were observed doing. Ah, that's that's a hard one to answer, but it's a great question. Um, you know, many of the characteristics that are observed with these triangles are very reminiscent of the other UFOs that we got, obviously thousands of reports of. Uh, one example is. Many witnesses will see a triangular UFO, and then with the blink of an eye, it moves off from, say, the eastern horizon, and it's suddenly now seen over in the western horizon. So this ability to instantly relocate or to hyper-accelerate from one position, point A to point B, and that's obviously reminiscent of many other non-triangular UFO reports. Um, we also have reports of triangles that just uh, disappear in front of the eyewitness's eyes. It, it just evaporates or disintegrates or, you know, somehow their visual perception of it is obscured. And many other UFO reports are like that. Uh, one of the characteristics I've outlined are some of these triangular UFOs, while the observer's observing it, morph or change shape. Uh, and many other UFOs are certainly, uh, you know, known to do that. Uh, and so... Uh, it, there's very common characteristics associated with the triangles that are reminiscent of other non-triangular UFOs. I've always thought that this idea that the UFOs change shape is really a matter of perspective. I and I acknowledge that in my book. Uh, you know, many of the accounts could be based on perspective, but then we have this case from Albany, Georgia, I just cited, where you know, how do you explain that one? You know, you see this circular light, and now it changes into a triangle. And then it it subdivides into two triangles. It's just so there are there are there are a subset of those reports. Uh, I think the vast majority, to your point, it could be uh, attributed to perspective and changes in perspective. But then there are these other ones that are of high strangeness, for lack of a better term. Well, when when you're talking about the Albany, Georgia case, the thing that came to mind uh, was it daylight or night when this happened? This was nighttime observation. Yeah, I can't remember the exact time, uh, but it was well, uh, nighttime observation. My point, my point is that the changing shape may not be a change of shape, but a change in the light patterns. Could be absolutely, uh, without a doubt. Uh, again, you know. The one thing that skeptics always bring up, and I think rightly so, is that, you know, we are terrible perceivers of reality as far as what we see in our interpretation. That being said, I, I don't generalize it to the extreme some skeptics do, where basically people are seeing things that aren't there. But to your point, uh, we have to concede that, you know, there will be errors in judgment and there are, you know, certain limitations to our visual perceptions. Well, I remember quite a while ago looking up in the sky and seeing a, a pattern of light that reminded me it was reminiscent of a dome disc. Mm -hmm. And I was just uh, just blown away by this. And then all of a sudden the wind changed and I could hear the jet engines. <laughs> and what it was at night and the angle the airplane was flying, uh, the pattern of the lights gave the impression of a dome disc. So the mind sure. tends to feel, fill in details that may not be there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that was why I, I wondered if it was daylight or night, because if the, the lights changed or the patterns changed, it may not it, it may not have separated into two, but it may have been just a change in the pattern to the lights on the thing. Sure. Yeah. Now, or whatever which, he was looking at. Absolutely. We do have some very impressive daylight sightings, though, of these dark triangular objects. They're not just all sighted at night, which I think is kind of a, a, somewhat of a, a you know fallacy. Many people think they're only seen at night. 
Yeah, going back to 1957, there were a series of sightings uh, in multiple locations across the globe. Some of these were in Project Blue Book reports. Other ones were in news accounts. There was a Reuters news service article I stumbled across in in the village of Brohir, Denmark. Uh, They described a woman who had reported seeing a large black triangular silent object hovering low over the village. Now, admittedly, that... You know, on the surface, it was a, an individual solitary UFO report. What was interesting is the Reuters news service stated that reporters were able to verify the woman's testimony with approximately 20 other villagers. So it, it turned out to be a multiple witness case. And in that case, they described not only a black silent triangular object that was apparently hovering, they saw horseshoe shaped objects flying out of the triangle, each emitting a strong bright light. And how big were these little the horseshoe-shaped objects? I Again, say little, I be, to your point, it wasn't a military report, so we don't have that level of specificity. Unfortunately, it just gives you a general broad overview. Um, but what I found was that there were other sightings of triangular UFOs in Denmark at the time. And in the news accounts, translated news accounts, they called them triangular spaceships was how they were referencing them. Do people see them on the ground, landed? That is the one of the most interesting things, Kevin. It, obviously, looking at data, as you have done over the years, we look for patterns in the data, not only what's there, but what's not there. And the one thing I have yet to find is one credible or even semi-credible, I might add, account of a landed triangular UFO. Um, you know, the closest thing I can come that many of your audience may be thinking about right now is the small triangular object that was reported at, at Rendlesham uh, that apparently had landed and left these three pod marks on the ground or imprint landing marks. Uh, but again, that's a small triangular UFO. We're not talking on the scale of some of these larger triangular UFOs that have been reported over the decades. So to your point, and I've often mentioned this in my lectures across the country, it's interesting that we don't have one account of one landing. Well, the interesting thing, uh, Ted Phillips said many, many times, if you told him the configuration of the landing gear, meaning the the impressions left on the ground, he could tell you the shape of the object, Hmm. which suggested a a level of repeatability. Sure. uh, From from those observations. Sure. But it's it's kind of astonishing that there's no reports of them landed, the triangular UFOs landed anywhere, which would also suggest there's not any occupant reports that is associated with them. No, well, there are occupant reports, but let me clarify that. We're not talking the landed flying saucer with the little diminutive creatures running around the the landed vehicle, uh, such as we have in Socorro or in France in 1954 during the famous wave. However, uh, that being said, and I'm really glad you brought that, that point up, Subsequent to the book being written, I was rather naive and just wanting to get the information out there. I was not really even envisioning what was going to happen as a result of getting the book out there. Namely, hundreds if not thousands of people contacting me worldwide with their reports. I I, I just did not envision that that would happen. And a number of the reports I've received over the years, uh, some of these going back 20, 30 years, People described that they saw a triangle floating by with picture windows along the side, and they could see silhouettes of people, for lack of a better term. They didn't use the term. I don't think any. I don't think any witness used the term alien. They just simply said, "I could see a person standing that were backlit. There was light on the inside of the craft shining out of these windows, and they could see the silhouette of a person or persons." Um, One of the most interesting reports like that was from a retired police officer in the UK. He was driving through the Midlands and late at night, his wife was asleep and he was driving and he saw this thing just come floating across the road. And he said he could see this figure standing in the window as the thing just very silently and very gracefully floated through the air and disappeared. And I interviewed him two or three times. I found it to be very credible. Um, you know, one of the, the hallmarks that I look for is how people classify these things. He simply stated it was an, an aircraft or an object. I don't know what it was. Could it have been military? Maybe. Could it have been extraterrestrial? Maybe. I just have no idea. But the, I guess the impression I get from what you're saying here is we've got a silhouette, uh, 
basically humanoid, but we don't know any descriptions of Correct. what they really look like. Correct. Exactly. So, you know, but to your point, in that sense, we do have some reports of, of humanoids or, you know, beings, for lack of a better term, because as some people have uh, postulated, and I completely agree, people assume, and I think you'll agree on this one, Kevin, people just assume these UFOs are piloted. Well, you know, we send out probes into the, the vastness of space. Uh, who's to say that all of these triangular UFOs are piloted or UFOs in general? Um, many of these things may be just automated systems that have been deployed to investigate, research, and analyze and collect data. Um, you know, quite often that's cited when they talk about these things that just have this hyper acceleration. We well, talk let, me about interrupt, let me interrupt you here because I got to take the last break. Sure. And we'll come back to that point here in just a moment. Uh, I'll have more information up on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, a little links to some other uh, triangular-shaped UFO sightings and that sort of thing for those who want to pursue this at a greater length. I am here with David Mahler. We're talking about his book, Triangular UFOs, Estimate of the Situation. And I will be back right after this, so please stick around. David Mahler, we are practicing social distancing. He is somewhere. I do not know where. <laughs> I am here, and I do know where. So there, <laughs> there you have it. Um, I'm going to break the flow here a little bit because I wanted to get this last question uh, from, from one of the witnesses. And we really didn't discuss this um, precisely, but uh, do you have a, the, the earliest known sighting of one of these triangular-shaped UFOs? Well, uh, going back to the earlier scientific journals, uh, Scientific American had a report from 1882, which uh, when I found the original copy, it was actually published in uh, January of 1882. So it would have been reflective of 1881 being one of the earliest accounts. And it was astronomers in uh, Connecticut that were looking at the moon and they described seeing two black triangular notches uh, approaching each other on the lower half of the moon. And it was a very interesting account. But again, as I alluded to earlier, Kevin, the early accounts are intriguing, but there's not much to hang your hat on, as you alluded to earlier, as opposed to more modern or contemporary military reports where there's much more information. And admittedly, uh, you know, reports in the last 30, 40, 50 years, we can still maybe even track down the witnesses. Cases from 1880 are very difficult to pin down. It also brings up another question. I kind of talked about this before. We're asked about this before, but we'll get to it here. Um, we have UFOs that um, exhibit electromagnetic effects. We have photographs. We have radar trackings. We have uh, landing traces and all these other things that go along with UFOs. Sure. But we don't seem to have, we, we just have sightings of the triangular-shaped UFOs. We don't really have this robust nature of evidence for them other than the visual sightings. Well, the problem is uh, we have an ample amount of photographs and videos, but most of those are circulating on the Internet with questionable at best provenance. And uh, many of those are just being actively, you know, hoaxed by individuals and organizations that pride themselves on creating, you know, fake UFO videos just so they can get clicks on YouTube. Um, so it's very problematic. Um, you know, I, I've often stated that with the Internet and UFOs and probably many other things, not just UFOs, uh, you know, we have a vast quantity of information, but the quality is lacking. But we don't have we don't have the but you mentioned there's no associated um, electromagnetic effects. We don't have any sound associated with them, any smoke yeah. Yeah. associated yeah, with few. them. Very few electromagnetic effects and, uh, you know, nothing, nothing really substantial that can be investigated. And to your point, you know, the absence of landing traces, um, the, again, probably the best corroborative information we have to bolster the eyewitness reports 
would be the you know radar visual cases that we have. I think that's probably some of the more compelling. And again, most of those are from military sources. So the provenance of those reports are a little bit more robust compared to civilian uh, reports. And these sort of sightings are still going on today, obviously. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, one of the things with today, though, and by today, I would say in the last 20, 30 years, we have to concede that some of these triangular objects, uh, for lack of a better term, could be military. I concede that. Um, I'm not working on classified compartmental projects in the area of advanced propulsion technology. So I can't sit here and say what state-of-the-art technology is today. And that's one of the interesting things, too, about doing the historical research. And, and Kevin, you probably would agree with this on some of your own research, looking at some of these historical cases. We can look back to, say, Leveland, November 1957. We can look back to 1948 with a fair degree of certainty as far as what state-of-the-art technology was at the time. And so even though they're old cases, I know a lot of people get bored with historical cases. I find them utterly fascinating if there's something that's uh, you know substantial there. Um, but we can look at those cases with a fair degree of certainty knowing what state-of-the-art technology was. Now, if you and I were tasked with investigating a case together that happened, say, a year ago, we're going to be very hard-pressed to, to rule out military as an explanation, simply because we don't know what we're currently capable of in the area of advanced aeronautics. And the other side of that coin is we've seen some of that already with the F-117 fighter and the flying wing, because those yes. are basically triangular-shaped objects. Yes, and I'm glad you brought that up, Kevin. In some of the newspaper accounts I have, dating back to the mid to late 1980s, uh, there were a series of sightings of uh, triangular or bat wing shaped objects being seen over the Antelope Valley in California. And later it was determined those were sightings of the B-2 that were, that were flying at night uh, or near, near dark. And so uh, that's a, a perfect example where in many cases, UFOs, triangular and otherwise, could be some types of top secret military aircraft. So we can never rule that out as a possibility. And then unfortunately added to that, you know, to the bane of UFO researchers and investigators out there, in the last 20 years, look at the proliferation of both civilian, military, and commercial drones that just add to the mix. Yeah, and you can put almost any light pattern on one of those drones and, and fool a lot of people that way if you're inclined to do that. Absolutely, absolutely. I did want to mention, though, that my, my research has really uh, taken off in the last couple months. In November, actually on Election Day last year, November 3rd, um, I was the very proud and I'm very honored to be able to share this with your audience. I was very proud to be uh, designated as the official curator for the KUFOS UFO case file collection. And that, of course, is Dr. J. Allen Hynek's Project Blue Book material the KUFOS case files, as well as the NICAP uh, UFO case files going back to the 1950s. And so now that I have those here in my research room, uh, I, I am now suddenly afforded this huge bolus of UFO reports that I've never seen before and that I'm currently going through. I just went about through 50 or 60 this morning uh, and I'm specifically initially going through looking for specifically these triangular UFO reports that predate some of the more uh, contemporary uh, reports that we have. I'm astonished you had room to store all of that. <laughs> I have to thank my wonderful wife, Kevin, <laughs> without without whom I could not do this. So it was actually uh, her her idea or suggestion to, to talk to Dr. Mark Rodiger and suggest uh, that, you know, they were trying to find a, a viable home. And I, I have to state, it wasn't just arbitrarily designated to be curated here. The goal is starting this year in 2021 to basically start a high-level digitization project to scan all of these files with the assistance of Jan Aldrich and Barry Greenwood, who are going to be having extended stays here at my home uh, this year uh, to really do the lion's share of the work. Well, I often laugh. Um, I have a, a external hard drive that's one terabyte, which cracks me up there about the size of a large pack of cigarettes. And on that, I have the entire Project Blue Book file, yeah. all 130,000 pages of that. Sure. Um, 
And then there's a lot of other stuff on there as well. And I'm just astonished at the amount of material I have on that very small device. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the goal is obviously to scan it, preserve it. But ultimately, the goal is to, to make it widely available. Uh, we want to make this free and accessible, this amount of data free and accessible to any researcher worldwide. And the physical files just really don't lend to that. So in the short term, if anyone wants to see the files, they have to come to Albuquerque, where I'm based. Uh, and I have my research room here where people can come and go through the files, scan, and use that information. In addition to the 15 to 16 cabinets and multiple bookcases I already had and microfilm and audio files that I've collected. But, um, you know, the ultimate goal is to digitize it, to your point, and make it easily accessible worldwide. And so... Once the files are scanned, then the next phase is, you know, what platform do we try to make this accessible? Well, it would seem the also question is an easy way to search it or a way of categorizing things so that if I'm only interested in these sorts of sightings, I can push a button and those all the a listing of those sightings come up. Right, right. And, and to that point, I, I will add, although it's premature, but since you've touched on that, I do know of two or three different individuals and groups that are currently designing and proposing, and some of this, I might add, have some buy-in from some, some large IT uh, companies that are out there. Um, they're looking uh, to develop a UFO database, and there have been UFO databases, obviously, UFOCAT, the U Larry Hatch U UFO database, uh, even going back to uh, you know David Saunders, right, with the original UFOCAT back in the 70s. Um, and Dr. Jacques Vallée, of course, has uh, you know been interested in having a database. But ideally, ultimately, not just putting it on a server where people would have access, but to your point, where we can have it in a workable database where you can truly distill and drill down based on certain criteria or certain aspects that you're wanting to look at. Well, there's such a mass of information out there, and I, the, the skeptical argument always is bad, you know, well... <laughs> Uh, we don't have we don't have good evidence here. We don't have good evidence there. We don't know they're not seen on radar. We don't have good photographs. And this seems to be a way of collecting all of that data, which yes. has been fragmented everywhere, yes. and placing it in one one location where you can say, well, yeah, you don't you want radar cases? Here's you know seven thousand of them. Yes. No. I the, the the comment that I make often, and especially now with this recent edition of the Kufos files, we are a data rich field. We have lots of data. And, you know, in, in November alone, I had 15 four and five drawer file cabinets chalk filled from front to back each drawer with case files going back to the early mid 1950s. And so there is a lot of data there. What I find interesting, though, and I don't mean to disparage the individuals I'm about to reference, but there's organizations like MUFON that continue to collect new reports. Well, that's great. You go out, you investigate, you document, you file it along with all the other reports. When are you going to look at the data that we've been sitting on for the last 50, 60 years? There's a lot of data there. We need to start parsing the data, looking at it, to your point, Kevin, uh, looking at specific characteristics or looking for patterns in the data uh, to continue just to add more files to an already growing pile of case files isn't really budging the needle and getting us to answers. However, I don't, like I said, I don't mean to disparage that. We still need to collect data, but I think in addition to that, we need to marry that with people that are truly doing historical research like yourself, looking at these historic cases, looking for patterns and looking at the big picture. Well, I hate to cut you off there, but I'm out of time. And I had a couple of additional questions to talk about, but we'll have to save that for another, I guess, another time. <laughs> uh, the book is UFO, uh, Triangular UFOs, An Estimate of the Situation. The website is www.davidmarlerufo.com, David Marler. UFO, uh, all one word, all lowercase. Thank you for taking time. And I know it was kind of an inconvenience for you to do the show today, but I certainly appreciate you taking your time to be here with us. I'm happy to accommodate you, Kevin. I've been a fan of your research for many years, and it's an honor to be here with you today. Well, thank you so much. And I will get you the link to the show uh, as soon as I have it and, uh, and something up on my blog about our program today. Thank you again. Thank you. That was David Marler. We were talking triangular UFOs, which is a topic that I don't think has been explored as greatly as it should have been or could have been. Um, as I say, I've been looking into cases of electromagnetic effects, I think building on the research that Mark Rodiker had done back in the um, 1980s, giving us an idea of how the 
UFOs, some UFOs interact with the environment, which I think is something that has been overlooked and something that needs to be resolved. And by looking at historical cases, I have found information that has been overlooked, that's hidden in the last paragraphs of a newspaper article or at the back of a Project Blue Book file, things like that to suggest some of these cases are a little bit more interesting than we've been led to believe. Uh, reading a little bit between the lines and actually finding some of the people who were involved in these cases and having an opportunity to chat with them. And yeah, I'm talking to people who are now in their 70s and 80s about things they had seen 50 years ago, but that doesn't negate the importance of the case, especially when we have some documentation to back up what they said, we can we can uh, validate that. And I will mention this briefly. I do a blog called um, VietnamGroundZero.blogspot.com, VietnamGroundZero, all one word. And I mention this only because the caveat on this blog, I said my my mostly true reminiscence of Vietnam. And I always had the idea in my mind that I had left my Thanksgiving dinner on the tray in the serving line because this flight had been scrambled. I found a letter that I'd written home during that time. We weren't even at Coochie when this happened. The point being simply my mind had substituted other instances where that happened to us and plugged it into Thanksgiving. Uh, it's up on the, uh, the the Vietnam Ground Zero blog if you want to take a look at that. You have been listening to the a Different Perspective on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. I'll be back in about 167 hours with more about UFOs, so thank you for tuning in. <laughs>